And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Join me right now for our look at uh, Catholic stories from around the world. We've got Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief for EWTN News, a Senior Fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and the author or co-author of more than 50 books, including the first English-language biography of Pope Francis. Well, Matthew, good to have you back here. Thanks. Always good to be with you. Let's let's go to this first story, uh, which there's still relatively little information about, and that is the murder of Bishop O'Connell, the auxiliary bishop in Los Angeles. What can you tell us about that? Well, that's right, and and the use of the term uh, murdered is now appropriate. Uh, The district attorney in Los Angeles, uh, George Gascon, has uh, formally charged um, the husband of the auxiliary bishop there, David O'Connell's housekeeper, so Carlos Medina, uh, and uh, our reporting indicates that he has admitted uh, to murdering uh, the bishop. Uh, He apparently shot him. uh, The police have the weapon uh, that uh, was used, as well as a number of other pieces of evidence. Now, there's a lot of... um, We have many questions in, in terms of this whole case, uh, there was a lot of confusion to start with, which I think didn't help the situation. But one thing is clear that uh, this was, as far as the district attorney is concerned, a homicide. Uh, and as does happen, uh, it is somebody who had access to the house. Uh, and uh, there were initial reports uh, that he felt somehow that he was owed money. Right. Uh, so all of this is obviously going to uh, uh, play out over the next uh, weeks and months uh, as they move toward a trial. But no clear, uh, certain evidence of motive is uh, under, at play yet. We, we don't really know. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, and it's certainly in the, the reporting uh, that's been done across secular media and uh, by the, the Catholic News Agency, uh, reports of the suspect, now the uh, person who's been charged, uh, Medina, that he was displaying strange and irrational behavior, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that he had made these um, comments about the bishop owing him money. Uh, so he was arrested on Monday morning, a, a SWAT team uh, raided his house, basically, yeah. uh, and he was subsequently charged on Wednesday. So with the confession in hand, with the with very clear evidence, uh, we'll have to see how this plays out again in court. Do uh, do we have much information on Bishop O'Connell himself? Do we know much about his uh, ministry over the years? Oh, uh, Bishop O'Connell, uh, within the L.A. Archdiocese, um, I think one of the ways you can put it is, uh, I don't want to use the term legend, but this is somebody who was very well known okay. uh, in the L.A. Archdiocese in Southern California. He was a native of Ireland and had served in the Los Angeles Archdiocese for some 40 years. And prior to his departure from Ireland, he had worked actually with some of the Irish gangs. And when he arrived in California, as many Irish priests are wont to do, I mean, many Irish priests left Ireland decades ago um, and began serving in the U.S., he also took up service in providing a, a kind of mediator role uh, for so many of the, the various gangs and, and people in dire straits. He was intensely pastoral. Uh, he was known as Bishop Dave, uh, okay. named an auxiliary bishop for the archdiocese, and uh, continued that reputation uh, for 
living in the barrio, living in some of the and ministering in some of the worst parts of Los Angeles. Uh, and again, that reputation. The, one of the ways to put it is that he had to borrow a phrase from Pope Francis: "The smell of the sheep on him." Yeah. That uh, he certainly was viewed as a kind of social justice priest and bishop, mm-hmm. but he was the real deal in the sense of being out there. Yeah. That uh, yeah. he was in, again, some of these worst parts of the city. But he also had a very, reportedly, very strong Eucharistic devotion. Okay. Uh, there were videos of him uh, that circulated from, I think, a documentary uh, where during COVID, uh, he went to the top of the San Gabriel Mountains in the L.A. area and blessed the valley. And they're really quite striking hmm. uh, videos. Uh, there are reports, for example, of him weeping uh, when teaching about the Eucharist. So this well, is somebody, again, who had, uh, by every measure that we're hearing, uh, a very strong prayer life, uh, a strong devotion to the Blessed Mother, a strong devotion to the Eucharist. Okay. Well, it's it's a, it's a terrible story. Um, it is. And... Um, I think everybody's puzzled by. Uh, do, do we know that? Do we, it was reported that he was actually shot while he was sleeping. Is well, that he would, been established. The my understanding is that he was found uh, murdered in his bed. Okay. Uh, so that's based on all the reporting that we're we're hearing. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that this is a story that's going to continue to unfold, and as uh, LA police continue their work. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to Germany again. We, we can't avoid Germany. <laughs> Vida. <laughs> uh, there's a story here that uh, four women uh, who were apparently participants, uh, prominent participants, in the German Synodal Way have now opted out. That's right. What can you tell us about? Who are they and uh, how they get involved? Why did they get out? Yeah, this comes on the heels of uh, a number of uh, individuals who, over the last couple of years, have grown so uh, disappointed, in some cases outraged in others, uh, that they have just walked away from this entire synodal path or synodal way in Germany. In this case, um, we are now only weeks away from the final gathering of the, the German synodal way, and for different reasons, uh, for prominent participants. As you note, all of them accomplished, remarkable uh, theologians and journalists announced together that they were just leaving. So there are, we have a theology professor in Katharina Westerhorstmann uh, and also a theologian Marianne Schlosser, uh, also with a philosopher, Hanna-Barbara Gelfalkowitz, and then a journalist by the name of Dorothea Schmidt. Each of them, uh, and then together, uh, have raised what they consider to be insuperable objections, uh, both about the direction and the conduct of the Synodal Way. Uh, so they published a statement uh, that was in uh, the, news, the German newspaper Welt uh, saying that um, their concern is that this entire process, and you and I have been talking about this now for going on, what, three years, yeah. uh, that this process is, quote, casting doubt on central Catholic doctrines and beliefs, and then also um, expressed their outrage that uh, the organizers of this synod, and this is certainly something extremely well documented, are ignoring uh, the warnings, interventions, and admonitions on the part of the Vatican. Yeah. And so I think they have simply reached the point where they cannot 
participate any further in a process that has very little credibility left, but also now is obvious and obstinate uh, in its rejection of the requests by Pope Francis himself uh, to stop the direction they're going in. Now, we can add, too, that um, three of these are university professors. Two are winners of the Ratzinger Prize, which Mm -hmm. is one of the highest prizes you can win uh, in the church uh, for brilliance in theology. Okay. So these four individuals know their stuff when it comes to church teaching. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I saw one report that said that they uh, acknowledged that this was actually a power play on the part of the leadership there to put pressure on the church to change teaching. Well, that's right, yeah. Uh, Thomas Sternberg, who's the, the former president of the, the sort of what's called the Central Committee of German Catholics, the ZDK, uh, has been very clear uh, saying that one of the goals of this entire synodal process uh, is to bring about changes in church teaching on everything from our, our beliefs and human sexuality, in particular uh, the church's teachings on homosexuality, uh, the role of the priesthood, uh, the ordination of women, uh, not just to this vague notion of a diaconate, but to the priesthood, uh, and uh, how authority is wielded in the church. And we've already seen um, the first report that was issued had to do with authority, uh, which of the pillars, I think, was the first one they went with because that then allows them uh, to make decisions wholly outside of rightful authority in the church, which is mm-hmm. then systematically what this German synodal way has done, uh, essentially democratizing the whole process that the majority of vote wins. And that has subsequently been how they have exercised this leading up to this idea of a permanent synodal council uh, that is going to... Uh, wield some kind of an authority over yeah. the German church, yeah. uh, despite the protestations. Now, this group of theologians and the, the journalists uh, who have left, uh, in particular Marian Schlosser, uh, noted in their discussions that there seems to be this obsession or a fixation on the ordination of women yeah. uh, by this process. And it's really impressive and striking to me that you have these four accomplished women rejecting completely what this German synodal way is trying to do, yeah. specifically in the area of the ordination of women. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, they they actually do know what the church teaches on this, and I, I I think your point about them going after the issue of authority first makes a lot of sense. It it comes down to uh, they can now uh, when the Holy See objects or other bishops object. Uh, th- they can simply say, well, says who? Who, who has authority here? They're calling into question the very basis of the authority of the uh, papacy and the uh, bro- more broadly, uh, the hierarchy. That's right. So, That's so, absolutely right. So. We've seen, too, uh, the determination on the part of this uh, synodal way uh, to have this permanent synodal council and then it's worth repeating uh, the comment from Bishop Georg Beitzing, uh, who is the president of the German bishops, uh, who was the successor uh, to Cardinal Reinhard Marx, who really was the architect of this disaster. Uh, and Beitzing said, well, we consider ourselves Catholics. We just want to be Catholics in a different way. <laughs> and that as a... <laughs> as a okay. 
that's their motto. I mean, it's we want to be Catholics in a different way. That that's many things, but I'm not sure where that fits exactly into the great marks of the church. No, no, exactly. <laughs> I don't think we're you know one holy Catholic in a different way, an apostolic. Hold <laughs> there. We'll take a break. We'll come back on the other side of it. <clears throat> Dr. Matthew Bunsen, my guest, taking a look at stories from around the Catholic world. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, taking a look at stories from around the world, again, in which the Catholic Church is uh, prominently involved. Uh, certainly are. <clears throat> excuse me. We've been discussing the Catholic Church in Germany in its uh, synodal way. Uh, where does this end up? You know, what this has to end somewhere. How, how do they envision... <laughs> Uh, they, they can't imagine being successful at this point. Well, I think uh, success, uh, survival is success, I think, uh, to some degree uh, okay. in their minds. There are a couple of things that I think we can look at. Uh, the One is they are pushing ahead with completing this process. Uh, they were undeterred by anything that uh, Pope Francis has said. They're completely undeterred by any comments from Cardinal Ladaria, who's the prefect for the Dicastery for Doctrine of the Faith, from uh, Cardinal Mark Ouellette, uh the prefect for bishops. They are simply plowing ahead. And... They will bring this process to a close, which has always been, again, their objective by releasing these final reports, by establishing the Synodal Council to try to exercise influence over the German church. But let's also keep an eye on what the real long-term focus is, which is um, to spread these ideas uh, like a virus, uh, or shall we say uh, nailing them on the church doors of Wittenberg, yeah. uh, a la Luther. Uh, that somehow there will be other Episcopal conferences, other national churches that will pick up a similar cause and try to push ahead with it. Uh, at the same time, it's very clear, too, that uh, they intend to raise all of this at the Synod of Bishops that's to be gathering in October of this year and then concluding its work on the Synod on Synodality next year. They want everything that they're advocating uh, to be part of that discussion partly so that it's included in these discussions. I think they have the long-term goal of uh, directly changing church teaching, but I think they also want these ideas uh, written, documented in official synodal documents and then handed to Pope Francis. I think that's one of their goals here, so that it is there permanently, at, so that you can make the argument that, well, the, the ordination of women as a question theologically is closed. Pope Francis has said that. John Paul II has said that. Benedict XVI has said that. They want that reopened. And I think they see this as a way of leveraging that argument publicly, uh, again, to put pressure to change the teachings of the Church. Yeah. Let me uh, switch gears a little bit and come back to the United States, where Cardinal uh, Robert McElroy has called for some sort of reforming of the Church's pastoral practice related to sexual sins. Uh, this goes back to his uh, essay in which he said the current approach is harmful, 
uh, that it's exclusionary. And uh, apparently he's now modified his position or clarified it, saying that he's uh, not uh, calling for a change in teaching, but for a, he's calling for a new framework uh, in which we understand the church's pastoral theology. Uh, is this is this a distinction without a difference? Uh, I think that uh, he recognizes that uh, many prominent voices uh, have spoken out uh, in alarm uh, at uh, his comments. Uh, he's uh, going. To, I know he does a lot of public speaking on on this very topic. Uh, so we'll have to see what comes of it uh, in the next days and weeks. Uh, I think it's. Um, striking that even some of those who would be judged as close colleagues, I think of Cardinal Tobin in Newark, um, has had a few things to say in this regard as well. Uh, So I think there is an effort here to try to clarify some of those comments, but uh, I I think you're right. I think at the end of the day, if we're talking about frameworks, uh, we're still talking about opening the door to a lot of fundamental changes uh, to church teaching. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed uh, that uh, Father Thomas Berg, who I know somewhat, uh, we've spent some time together, said that the offer, what what uh, Colonel McElroy is offering here, is really unnecessary, uh, given that the Church already has well-established practices in accompanying the faithful, helping them gradually come to a fuller embrace of the Church's moral teaching, but without having to water it down, or as he said, special moral carve-outs for each person. The question of mortal sin has the component, of course, of not only being objectively grave matter and being conscious of it, but also uh, do you have uh, adequate uh, freedom in terms of this? An addict, for instance, who regularly is using heroin, after a while loses to some degree their culpability because they're in bondage uh, to this. They don't have the capacity to exercise full freedom, mm-hmm. as that's they right. at, at the beginning. And that's already part of the Church's teaching here. It's already part of the pastoral theology of the Church. And it just seems clear to me that, um, I don't know why, Cardinal McElroy doesn't simply clarify what the Church already teaches in these areas. Right, and, and find new ways to uh, express them yeah. uh, in, in a pastoral way uh, that— on the one hand, does not water down what we're teaching, but on the other, also calls people uh, to the beauty of the Christian life yeah. in, in all of its meaning. And uh, I, one of the things that uh, individuals like Father Berg, uh, it, they are very clarifying in yeah. actually how this can be done pastorally and very effectively. Yeah. Uh, but once we get into the hazy ground of radical inclusion, mm-hmm. uh, it, it opens the door for a, a lot of uh, questions, misinterpretations, uh, and others. And we're also, it, I find it so interesting that we keep coming back uh, to the great documents of John Paul II. There are so many um, advocates right now for sort of consigning that papal magisterium to the dustbin of history, to, to borrow the classic phrase, mm-hmm. uh, to ignore it. And yet they, they have to keep going back uh, to things like Familiaris Consortio yeah. uh, and the great documents of John Paul II to interpret them in a way that they try to manipulate or to apply. Uh, they do the same thing with uh, the teachings of Pope Benedict. But in, in the case of uh, the moral theologians, uh, 
Cardinal McElroy himself has used the phrase that this law of gradualism yeah. and how we interpret yeah. it. And I think one of the great fights that we have right now in moral theology, and, and Father Berg, I think, is one of the great uh, voices for how to do this faithfully. Yes, I agree. Uh, is, is how we achieve that while still being faithful and a proper understanding of what John Paul II meant, at the same time also what tradition teaches us yeah. and the great teachings of the Church teach us. Yeah. yeah. We've, had, we've had a long history of dealing with and helping people who are uh, in, uh, burdened, uh, locked in, in bondage to uh, sin. And we, there's nothing new here. Um, we've got a very solid teaching. It needs to be applied. Not everything, not everything can be made into a rule or a law. There's, there's always a place for the pastoral engagement uh, of the confessor and the uh, penitent, and I think uh, we need to we need to respect that. Yeah, and, and one of the points that uh, Father Berg makes that uh, it is worth reading, and especially in his interview with the National Catholic Register that uh, Jonathan Leadle did, uh, is the fact that we are so awash in sexuality today as a culture, and it's not coming from a position from the church's standpoint of an obsession with sex, but we are looking at the damage that's been done. Yeah. Uh, he talks, for example, about, he uses the phrase, the ubiquity of pornography, promiscuity, normalization of same-sex sexual relations and other sexual problems in the wake of the sexual revolution. All of it is toxic to culture, and we are seeing every day the fruits of it. So how can we engage and teach and bring people to an understanding of their own dignity uh, without having these types of discussions, without also then being faithful to the teachings of the church. Yeah. yeah. Let's uh, let's head on over to Africa. We're in Nigeria. They're going to the polls to choose a new president, uh, and there's some fear. Uh, the Catholics there and other Christians are having are fearful of what may be the result. Tell us about it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so the elections uh, will be on uh, February 25th, and we're, by way of context, we are seeing Nigeria convulsed uh, with almost it's just horrifying degrees of violence, of uh, corruption. Uh, and with that backdrop, uh, we have uh, the removal, the end of uh, President Muhammadu Buhari's uh, time as president. So he's had two terms. He cannot run again. And uh, notably that they have actually three major candidates for president. Now, the one among the, uh, the Christian population, so we always have to remember that Nigeria is sort of evenly divided between essentially Christians and Muslims. Mm -hmm. That's a simplification, but essentially Muslims to the north, Christians to the south. And uh, Peter Obi, who is a Catholic, uh, is one of uh, the candidates. The question then becomes uh, how this is all going to play out, because you have a front runner, uh, generally considered a front runner, who's a Muslim, Bola Ahmed Tinubu, uh, and then you also have um, another Muslim uh, who is currently vice president, Atiku Abu Bakr, who's an another Muslim. As I was saying, so we're seeing. Uh, how the political landscape is shifting. Now, were Obi to win, for example, a Catholic, a Christian, what would the reaction be? Uh, we're going to be looking very closely at concerns about violence during the voting, uh, and then, of course, ongoing violence against Christians, uh, especially in, in the South, uh, 
at the hands of ISIS in Africa, uh, the Fulani herdsmen, and others. Mm. Are they are Christians afraid that they can't get a fair election? Well, I think there's always uh, concern about uh, corruption in elections. Um, I think one of the bigger concerns is that uh, if we have uh, a win by uh, Tinubu or Abu Bakr, uh, who themselves have been charged, accused of corruption, uh, but were never actually convicted, uh, that all of them are promising that they will deal with uh, the Muslim insurgents and, and the bandits and others. Uh, but similar promises have been made, uh, certainly under uh, President Mohamedou's uh, time as president, and nothing has come of it. In fact, I think the situation now is significantly worse than it was even eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, one cardinal there is uh, uh, pointing out that this is going to either make or break Nigeria. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we're, you're talking about uh, a country that is sort of teetering on the brink of uh, a real crisis uh, economically, politically, uh, but especially in, in terms of religious strife. And uh, for Christians, uh, I think they're reaching the point of, of, of a breaking point uh, as a group. Well, listen, uh, I think, I, tell us the story of McDonald's fish fillet. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we've, got about not, we've got about one minute. <laughs> So Ash Wednesday, uh, this is one of those great legends. Essentially, uh, it began 45 years ago, uh, and the invention was really uh, for Cincinnati, uh, as I I understand it. I I could be wrong, but I I think the clientele that was dining at McDonald's, uh, they were fasting during Lent, and obviously were abstaining from meat. And so the McDonald's in that area... Uh, decided uh, that they really needed to do something for Catholics. And like good businessmen, uh, Lou Grone, uh, who's the, the founder of this uh, restaurant, hamburger restaurant in Cincinnati, uh, came up with the idea of how about a fish sandwich? Uh, and the result, as they say, is, is history. <laughs> it's a wonderful story. And uh, also, I love the part of it where uh, uh, Rick Kroc wanted to have a pineapple sandwich. <laughs> and, right. and they had a wow. face-off between the fish and the pineapple, and the fish won. I would so. consider the pineapple to be very penitential. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, thanks so much. Great talking with you. God bless. Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Hi.